Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Let's turn to John 14, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. John 14, 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, I pray that you would illumine all of our hearts and minds, that every one of our thoughts and meditations would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So you'll remember from last Sunday's passage in chapter 13 that Jesus turned at that point to give comfort to his disciples. Judas had left the room uh, to do his work of betraying Jesus. And, And you'll remember that Jesus after Judas leaves, turns to his disciples and addresses them with that that sweet kindness, little children, not meaning to belittle them, but just meaning to show affection toward them. He calls them little children. And then he gives them a new commandment, right? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. that you love, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, have we thought about that commandment this week? Are we loving one another? Did we love one another? Have we relieved one another's burdens? Have we offered hope to those who are struggling with hopelessness? Have we strengthened those who are weak? Have we thought uh, at all about the souls, the cares, the concerns of others? Or has life just been a vortex around our own being? Um, perhaps this, was, this past week was a mixed bag for you as it was for me. Right? You did well with some people. You did poorly with other people and loving them. You loved Some, and then you just froze up with others, or worse yet, simply dismissed yourself from the duty that Jesus laid out to you last Sunday. 
and reminded, we were reminded of by the Holy Spirit last Sunday. Now, you'll also remember that Peter, at the end of the previous chapter, makes his thoughts known again, as he is wont to do. The Apostle Peter confidently asserts that he was willing to lay down his life for Jesus. That day, he, 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 he would lay down his life for Jesus. Jesus knowing what was coming, having knowledge of what lay ahead for Peter, rebukes Peter and tells him that not only would he not do that, but that he would even go on to deny Jesus three times before the sun rose. And then right on the heels of that pronouncement is our passage. You know, he says, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. And then his next words are, do not let your heart be troubled. And so Jesus continues on with this encouragement to these 11 men who remain in the upper room. Undoubtedly, their anxieties are increasing. Everything has, may have had the appearance that it's falling apart. I mean, they've just seen Judas leave, and they're all confused about that and discussing and making motions and, you know, just trying to get to the bottom of that. And, and then they've just heard that G Jesus tell Peter, you know, one of the three, one on the inner circle along with, you know, John and James, that he would deny Jesus that night three times, not once, right, but three times. It would appear that everything is falling apart, and Jesus has said to them several times before that he's going to Jerusalem where the, the scribes and the chief priests would put him to death. For three years, these men have been following Jesus. I imagine that was incredibly rich, sweet, mind-boggling time to hear truth from truth itself. And so for three years, they've been following Jesus, relying on Jesus, doing everything that Jesus commanded them. And now it seems all is going to change in a matter of hours, right? All is going to change. Judas has gone into the night. Peter, that rock, would prove his weakness. The Romans and the Jews would conspire together to put Jesus to death. Jesus knew his men would in hours see him hanging from that Roman cross. And though these men are confused about what is about to happen, they have to sense that things are going, things are certainly coming to a head. Things are just, there's too much going on. Things are coming to a, a dramatic change. And what followed is going to be a real hard struggle. What they had known and the sweetness they had, they had known was about to be finished. And in a matter of hours, a new situation would emerge where they would be without Jesus. But 
called to bring the gospel out to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. That's all they had to do. The remotest part of the earth they had to take the gospel to. And so Jesus, knowing this, just plops down in front of them this huge encouragement. Right? He just, he, he looks at his men. He knows what's coming for them. And he encourages them. And Jesus begins with these tender words, do not let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. That's the first thing. Our hearts are easily troubled, aren't they? Your hearts get troubled. How many times a day are your hearts troubled? Right? Even Jesus in the recent chapters knew some kind of trouble of heart. Right? His heart was troubled by the death of his friend Lazarus, by the betrayal of Judas. That that weighed on him, and then just contemplating the, the weight of the sin he was about to bear on the cross. Now, his, his trouble of heart he did with, without sin, his trouble of heart was not sinful anxiety or, a, or a, a trouble of heart that arises out of forgetfulness about the power of God, as ours is. That's where our anxieties and our trouble of hearts uh, descend from. His trouble of heart only made Jesus more resolute in his mission, right, to defeat sin and Satan. It just, it just got him more motivated. Our trouble of heart often arises out of our sinful nature. And when this trouble of heart or worry, or anxiety comes upon us, it does not make us more resolute in opposing sin, right? But it makes us forget the things of God. It simply just makes us forget the things of God. Worry is insane. It is our tendency to take matters into our own hands when facing things that seem to be things that we can't take into our own hands. It's insane. I mean, it really is. It does not make sense. It's when we feel the need to, 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 you know, not wait to take matters into our own hand in something that is beyond our handle. The fruit of our anxiety is to distance ourselves from God at the very time when we should be drawing near and insisting in prayer that he draw near to us. Right? We're, we're, we're withdrawing rather than proceeding toward. So Jesus, knowing the fears arising in the, the hearts of his men, says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Or we could say, do not let your hearts be agitated. Or we could say, do not let your hearts be terrified. Okay, we think, you know, all right, okay. Here we go. I certainly wish I could do that. I really certainly wish I could do that. I mean, it's, it, why is it so hard for me to do that? I, I'm trying. 
and trying and don't seem to be able to remove this trouble of my heart. Well, Sinclair Ferguson, reflecting on this passage, writes, if troubled people could relieve themselves of their troubles, they would. Isn't telling them not to be troubled simply a counsel of despair? Did not Jesus know better than that? You know, and we, we, we do not let your hearts be troubled. Oh, okay. All right. Helpful. You know, and, and at the end of the day, if our heart remains troubled after a day of fighting our thoughts, after a full day, from waking moment to, to late in the night when the, the, we're terrified because the sun went down, we, we just turn to some relief outside of God. We often will turn to some relief outside of God. We turn to drunkenness. We turn to food. Right? We turn to entertainment. We turn to spending money. Some distraction. Right? Or, or we allow the unrelieved troubles of our heart to give us a reason to harm ourselves or to burst out in anger against others or to withdraw just simply into despair. And Satan loves it. Satan loves it when we give ourselves to any of those things because he witnesses us in those things turning away from God, right? Turning from the one true source of relief and, and turning from the only source of comfort in this fallen world. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we all suffer with the disease of troubled hearts. Troubles of heart arise from inside of us and they also come as we react to things that, that happened outside of us. You know, the, this, this tale, this, this veil of tears, right? This veil of tears is the Puritans were want to call this life. This veil of tears is filled with all kinds of things that bring trouble to our hearts. Death and dying. Tragedies and, and you know, natural disasters and, and loss. Divorce. Loss of health. Right? Physical and spiritual abuse. Temptation. Constant, constant nagging of temptation. Sinful indulgence. I mean, even, even tiredness brings trouble of heart. And, and we all, you know, when we sing that, that verse in this hymn, we're all like, yep. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's trouble of heart, isn't it? It's worth saying at this point that if your heart is not troubled by the things I mentioned, right, death and dying and disabled children and suffering of all kinds, you know, persecution, temptation, if your heart's not troubled by the things I mentioned and by the unending, unending fight with your flesh, well, then you're in terrible shape. An absence of the trouble of heart in the face of these things could be a sign that your conscience is simply dead. 
Your conscience is so seared, it's just dead. You don't feel anything. You don't feel, you know, trouble at anything that goes on around you. And, or you have no sense at all of spiritual things. So even as the trouble of the heart is wrong, an absence of the troubled heart is doubly wrong. I mean, Romans 7, where the apostle Paul expresses the, the conflict within the Christian, not doing what we ought to do and doing what we ought not to do, or doing what we hate and not doing what we love, is going to be our experience until glory. Right? And, and, there, is not, and there is not that kind of warfare. If there is not that kind of warfare, well then, it perhaps indicates that you're just satisfied with this world and have no thought of the judgment to come. Having said that, though, let me return to what Jesus says after telling his men not to be troubled in heart. The rest of the chapter is medicine for the troubled heart. Right? The rest of the chapter, the part we didn't read, is is medicine. He's, and, and the first medicine is heaven is the home of those who believe in Christ. Verses 2 and 3, heaven is the home of those who believe in Christ. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Troubled in heart? Well, you have a home in heaven. This life, this veil of tears is temporary. That, that is eternal. Second, in Christ, believers have a certain way to heaven. Verses 5 and 6, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You know me. You have a sure way to, to come to where I'm going, and I'm going to heaven. Third, even when Christ departs, his work does not cease. Verses 12 through 14, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Wow, that's good medicine right? Even when he departs, his work does not cease. Fourth, when Christ leaves them, the apostles, they will have the Spirit to guide them. Verses 16 to 17, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him. Because he abides with you and will be in you, lives in you, right? What an encouragement. That's a good dose of medicine for the troubled in heart. Fifth, Christ will not stay away forever. He will return. Look at verses 18 through 24. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. 
In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, if everyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. And so that he's like, it's this love fest, right? I'm going to come, right? And you know, we'll all be together. We'll be I'll be in the Father, you'll be in me, united to me, and we'll, we'll be at peace. Six, the Spirit will teach them all they need to know. Verses 25 and 26, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. What a wonderful thing for those who don't have a good memory, right? Not only am I going to teach you, but I'm going to allow you to remember all the things I taught you. What a gift of the Holy Spirit that is, right? And then seventh, peace will give them joy even in Christ's absence. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And there's that bookend, right? Do not let your heart be troubled. He started there, he ended there, the bookend, in the middle are all the medicines that help us to um, truly trust in God and, and deal with that trouble of heart. So what does he tell them? He says, heaven is your home. Christ, whom you know, is the sure way to heaven. Even as I leave, you will do works that are greater than what you saw of me. You will have the Spirit. The Spirit will teach you everything you need to know. And you can do it all with a heavy, heavy dose of peace, which I'm giving to you and will fill your hearts in my absence. That's some good stuff, right? And that's really encourage, encouraging. Now, look through at the remainder of the first verse. We have the the We've considered the exhortation, do not let your heart be troubled, and Jesus quickly follows that up with, again, the simple antidote to a troubled heart. Believe in God, believe also in me. If your heart is troubled, what does he say to do? Believe in God, believe in Jesus. Pretty simple. Believe in God, believe in Jesus. Right? And believe in the Father, believe in the Son, believe in the Son, believe in the Father, believe what is taught in the Scriptures about the Father and the Son being one, one God along with the Holy Spirit who is their eternal, who in their eternal kindness, right, and grace determined to save for themselves a people. And so heart trouble begins when our faith in God and Christ wavers. That's where heart trouble begins, when that faith wavers. And there really are few who genuinely believe in God and His Son, Jesus Christ. How many people desire a superhero God? Not the weak Jesus who died on a cross. 
How many of you desire a God who will immediately relieve you of all of your suffering and remove you from this world now? How many of us truly believe in an incarnate Son of God who took on the flesh and lived on the earth then died and rose again from the dead? If we don't believe that, dear friends, our heart trouble will know absolutely no relief, ever. You'll be troubled of heart through eternity. In fact, your trouble of heart will grow and grow and grow until until our death releases us from our agony but only if you're a Christian. The whole world is in a conspiracy, isn't it? With the devil to make you think of Jesus Christ lightly. Right? It happens to, in very subtle ways. Here's an example, right? That you're going to hate me for. All of that supposed Christmas music about snowmen and elves and Santa. You think it's innocuous. You know what it does? It actually works together to diminish the glory of the actual incarnation of the Son of God. That's what it does. It's a distraction. I mean, Satan delights in that little tiny distraction. You know, um, I hate it when that junk is on, and you should too. We ought to be disgusted by what has become of the celebration of the incarnation of the Son of God, the turning point in the history of mankind, right? I, I, I don't hate all that stuff because it is trivial. That's not the reason I hate it. It is trivial. I don't hate it for that reason. I hate it because it so often satisfies us. <laughs> that's, that's why I hate it, Right? It so often satisfies us. Those feelings of nostalgia make us like little, dumb, intoxicated animals. <laughs> but dumb to the actual joy of faith in Jesus Christ. Dumb to the actual incredible reality of God taking on the flesh and being humbled so that you might be saved. Faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of a woman and triumph over death through His resurrection is the path of peace in your heart. Peace on earth, right? That was announced by those, those angels. That's the path of peace in your heart. Faith in Jesus Christ. He who became your sin and, and brought peace between you and a holy, holy, holy God. That's the path of peace in your heart. Faith in Jesus Christ, the one who will never leave or forsake us as we, yes, continue to slog through this veil of tears. That is the path of peace in this life. And so leave behind all those trappings of the Christian faith. Leave, leave them behind. I mean, okay, put up the lights. I don't want to be a hypocrite. Put up the lights, put up the tree, 
bake some cookies, give gifts, do all these things you are led to do, but do not lose sight of Jesus Christ. Do not lose sight of the incarnation. Don't lose sight of it. You have riches. You have eternal riches. You have eternal life if you believe in God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Whatever trouble this life brings, you can now, you know, know resolute freedom from a terrified heart. Christ has set you free from the tyranny of sin and the devil. Christ has made you alive from the dead. Christ has, in fact, gone ahead of you into heaven so that you might have a place to dwell with him for eternity. And now I want to sing one of those stupid Christmas songs. Just to contrast it, I won't do it. There's too many going through your head. I mean, we've already, you know... We've already snorted as much of that as we can snort. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I mean, what glory? No? What glory? Even as Jesus leaves the disciples, he tells them that his departure has to do with them. I mean, he's not, yes, he does pray in the high priestly prayer in John 17, right? He does pray, I want to go back. I want to go back to the glory that I knew with my father before the foundation of the world. But here he says, I'm going back because of you. Because I want to prepare a place for you. And how sweet it is when you arrive at somebody's house for hospitality and they've like, they've overdone it, right? They've put mints on the pillows for you. It's so great. It's like, wow, they were thinking of me before I even arrived. And this is what what Jesus is doing for you right now. He's, He's... not just putting a mint on the pillow. He's reminding the Father continually that I died for that one. I died for that one. That one's a citizen of Zion. He gets that room. He's got his name on it. He's not leaving them in order to forsake them. He's leaving them to get things in order for them to come live with him through the unending ages. This hope, the hope of heaven, is fundamental to every Christian's usefulness and perseverance in this life. Remember the context. Jesus is telling these men that they are about to engage in suffering for his kingdom and for the spread of his name. And the first thing he uses to encourage them is the fact that they had a dwelling place in heaven. That's really important, isn't it? It's really potent also, isn't it? Believing that we will dwell with God in eternity is that which spurs us on in this life. Or it should be. Believing that we will 
will dwell with God in eternity is what spurs us on in this life. It is a spur to many things, isn't it? It's a spur to holiness. It should be a spur to holiness. Holiness in the face of temptation. Second Peter, you know, 1.4. It's a spur to worship. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hebrews 10. Right? Knowing what's coming stimulates us to good works. The hope of heaven does not make us passive in this life. No, the hope of heaven is what allowed those apostles to go out and happily suffer in sharing the gospel. The hope of heaven is not escapism. Right? No, it is the proper stimulant to make us love one another and engage in all kinds of good deeds. Heavenly mindedness is that which makes us some earthly good, right? So Jesus in this passage is exhorting his men to have their minds in heaven, even and especially as they do their work on the earth. So too, you and I should have our minds in heaven, even and especially as we suffer through this life. No one is immune to suffering in this life. No one gets a pass on it. We get sick. We get diseases. We bury our friends. We feel at times persecution for our faith. We suffer when others say unkind things about us. Our consciences are weighed down by our own sins. It's easy through that battle simply to lose sight of heaven. I don't know why. I don't know how when something is that glorious that we could lose sight of it. The apostles were facing life without Christ's physical presence. They were facing hardship, suffering, persecution, and all of that could have had the result of turning their minds to whatever consolations they had within their reach in this life. It's common, isn't it, to portray soldiers in the midst of battle, you know, pulling a picture out of their, their you, you know, the down like six layers in their uniforms of a loved one as they are facing the, the battle, the, the worst battle that they've, they've fought. And they're in danger of death. And movies are filled with battle scenes in which the thought of a loved one, a girlfriend, a wife, a child, is the thing that sustains that soldier during that dire situation. You know, I don't think that's a, a flaw, but, but a feature of the human heart. Christ, who made the human heart and experienced the gravest of situations, tells his men to fix their hope on heaven so that the sufferings of the present life do not leave them dispirited, which they can do. The Apostle Paul does the same thing. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's like, man, the glory is coming. The suffering, the glory, you know. 
And, and he says later, if we hope for that which we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. We don't see it yet, but man, we wait eagerly for it. And then again, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing, anything in this world, will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's got his head up in the heavens. Now let me keep going with this. Jesus spurred his men on to heavenly mindedness so that they might persevere through the hardship that was coming. But heavenly mindedness is also living as if you were dead to the world. Would you describe yourself as dead to the world? If someone observed you for a year, would, would they come away from it convinced of your earthly mindedness or your heavenly mindedness? That's a torturous thought. I realize it. I'm not being fair up here. Um, would, you, would, would they come away from it and would they say, man, he is dead to the world? He's dead to the world. The world has no hooks in him. Would they describe your primary longing like this? He's faithful in this life and in this world because he has his mind fixed on things above. He lives upon the earth, but his mind is in heaven. He, he, he walks very lightly through this world, you know, because his, 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 it's like his entire being is, is up above. Or will it be like this? He lives upon the earth and his mind is seldom on heaven. He walks heavily with heavy footsteps on the earth. Very rarely does he lift his head to, to glance into heaven. There really is not much to distinguish this man from the worldling. He loves what they love. He pursues what they pursue. He goes to the same remedies they go to when they suffer. He grumbles and complains about the United States government, just like everybody else. Jesus has work for his disciples to do, and in order to properly accomplish it to his glory, they must have their minds fixed on heaven. They must contemplate, right, that no matter what occurs in this life, the Father has built a dwelling place for them that has many mansions. They must contemplate that no matter what occurs in the few days of this life, their Savior has gone ahead of them to prepare a place for them. They must contemplate that no matter what occurs in the few days of this life, Jesus will come again and receive them and be with him there in heaven. They've got to think about this and often and all the time. The Puritan, I'm really not being fair in quoting a Puritan, and especially Jeremiah Burroughs. Right, Corey? Jeremiah Burroughs said, Take heed that you are not covered with the earth while you are digging in the world. 
keep wide open someplace to heaven, or otherwise if you dig too deep, noxious gas vapors will come up from the earth if it doesn't fall on you first. There will be noxious gas vapors to choke you if there is not a wide hole to let in the air that comes from heaven to you. Those that are digging in the mines are very careful to leave a place open for fresh air to come in. And so though you may follow your calling and do the work that God sets here, you here for, as others do, be as diligent in your calling as any, but still keep a passage open to heaven that there may be fresh gales of grace come into your soul. If at any time you are in the world just one day and don't have some spiritual air from heaven, take heed, there's a vapor coming up that will choke you. Do you have trouble with this? Do you have trouble setting your mind on spiritual things? Welcome to the club. The world, your own flesh and the devil are set against you doing this. It's a huge fight. And yet when God allows you to do it, are you not incredibly refreshed and encouraged by it? When you, when you do set your mind on heaven, when you do have refreshment from him, when you can feel those gales of grace that you've left open, isn't it wonderful? It's incredibly refreshing. You're encouraged by it even still. The next time you have opportunity to do it, you find that your mind is more attracted to the NFL, or World Cup soccer, if you go that way. That is true, and that is precisely why Jesus is exhorting his double-minded men to fix their hope on heaven, even though they are not headed there immediately. They will struggle to maintain their spiritual-mindedness and there is a tag team ready to fight them all along the way, right? So like the Apostle Thomas, you may get confused about the destination of this life. Perhaps you think that there is a way to happiness and to the bliss of heaven to be found in this world. Or perhaps you think there is a source of truth that yet remains, you know, to be discovered through the inquiries of science, or perhaps you think the good life is to be surrounded by the best things of this world. And so you spend your life like Solomon, dabbling in this or that to find your contentment. Or going from question to question like the Apostle Thomas. Lord, how do we know the way? To which Jesus gives the ultimate answer, right? Right? The ultimate answer, the answer of answers, the answer that the Holy Spirit reveals to all those who are His, Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through the Son. In other words, Jesus tells Thomas that there is only one way to have everything and want nothing else. There is only one way to have a map. There's only one way to have and know the way to heaven, the source of truth and the blessing of eternal life. It comes by having Jesus Christ, believing in him. 
And so God alone, God in himself is the source of happiness for man. Man may seek for happiness in some other way, may seek to enter heaven some other way, psychedelics, for example, short-lived. And it's not heaven. It's more likely hellish. Or some source of wisdom, you know, yoga, for example. Talk about short-lived. That one's short-lived. Or from some other path to unending life, nanotechnology and cryogenics. There we go. They dropped Ted Williams and his, his head fracked fractured in a ton of pieces. Yeah, Ted Williams, a baseball player, cryogenically frozen. Man may seek for happiness in some other way to get all these things, and he's looking in a million directions, but it is already available. Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. Amen? Amen.